0: Well, good morning on this Sunday before Thanksgiving, and this last Sunday in our season, um, in our series through the book of James, our faith work series, um, and our last Sunday of the Christian year. The the Christian year begins the first Sunday of Advent, the turning of the new year, and so I'm um, glad to worship with you today. What makes you you? What defines your sense of identity? As a person, there are kind of two basic ways of approaching how we answer this question. One approach is to say that what makes you you are the things that set you apart and make you different from everybody else. Your personal thoughts and feelings, your preferences and, and opinions, your personal choices and decisions are the things that make you you. The technical term for this is individualism. Individualism sees everybody as kind of independent and on their own, on a journey of meaning and self-fulfillment that they make for themselves. Bible scholar N.T. Wright says that individualism is a relatively recent development in the big picture of world history, and it's mostly a Western thing, something in Western Europe and North America. But many of us would approach the question of what makes us who we are as individualists. But the other way to approach answering this question is to say that what makes you, you, are the communities that you belong to. Sometimes this is called collectivism, and collectivism is the idea that, that what makes us who we are are the groups of people that we're a part of, our extended family, or our faith community, or church, or our neighborhood. Australian Bible scholar Kevin Giles says that collectivism is the idea that the individual finds their sense of identity and meaning in life not as an independent individual, but as a member of a community. Many cultures around the world are more collectivist, especially in parts of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. And the events of the Bible, of both the Old and New Testament, took place in a more collectivist culture. Now, I think we need a healthy balance between individualism and collectivism. But our American culture today has become individualistic to the extreme. And you know, uh, more than 25 years ago, a Christian author, some of you may know, named Chuck Colson, wrote a book where he warned about this and that this was happening. Chuck Colson's book, The Body, he said that increasingly the church in America, in, in his view, had become infected by what he called a virus of radical individualism that reduces the Christian life to just me and Jesus. Colson said that Christianity is not a solitary belief system, and he said that any genuine revival and resurgence of authentic biblical Christianity would need to recover a commitment to the community, to the church, to the body of Christ. Yet many Christians today view involvement in Jesus' church. As a kind of optional extra, as a hobby for people who have extra time on their hands. Or like an elective in college, you know, you can squeeze it in if you have some room in your schedule. According to a Gallup poll in 2018, 40% of Christians in America are not part of a local congregation. And I'm sure that percentage has gone up significantly over the last two years of covid And don't get me wrong, I don't think being part of a church automatically makes a person a growing or maturing Christian, but I do think that 40% reveals just the extent of how radical individualism has impacted the church in our culture today. Colson's warning 25 years ago in his book, The Body, is even more true today than it was back then. Well, today we finished our series through the New Testament book of James that we're calling Faith Work. And James ends in chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 with a focus on faith work together. So as we finish James today, we're going to see two ways we need our church in order to live out the kind of faith that James has described in his book, A Faith That Works. So first in verses 13 through 18, we're going to see James emphasize praying together. So let's look at that passage together. James chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, it says, "Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick?" Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. The key phrase in this, I believe, is in verse 13, that phrase, among you. James was not writing to individual Christians who were studying his book, sitting on their back patio alone, sipping a cup of coffee. That's how I study often. But James was writing to a congregation, to a community of people whose lives were interconnected to one another in faith and in love. The words trouble and happy represent the two extremes of our experience as people. Among us at any given time are those whose hearts are burdened with troubles and those who are brimming with excitement and happiness at celebrations. Burdened with troubles like job problems, parenting issues, divorce, physical illness, financial difficulties, anxiety, discouragement. And brimming with things like promotions and the birth of a new baby and restored relationships and marriages. James calls those who are in trouble to pray and those who are happy to sing songs of praise. Which when you think about it, that's just another way of praying when we sing a song of praise. We're just praying with music. But praying when we're in trouble and singing songs of praise when we're happy is not something that we do in isolation. It's something that we do as a community. We know that because in verse 16, James says to confess our sins to each other and to pray for each other. We lift up our own prayers to God As individuals and we pray for each other as a community. We confess our own sins to God as individuals and we confess our sins to each other as a community. James presents us in these verses with a beautiful balance in between extreme individualism and collectivism. He recalls the Hebrew prophet Elijah to remind us that prayer is powerful and effective. Prayer accomplishes things, prayer changes circumstances, prayer changes and forms us when we pray, prayer gets things done, and this is why we need a church to live a faith that works. Prayer for each other strengthens our faith during the ups and downs of life, it strengthens our faith. A faith that works needs the support of a praying congregation. See, extreme individualism cuts us off from this. An extreme individualist says, my prayers are enough. I I, I can go to God directly in prayer, so I don't need anybody else's praying for me. And that's the virus of extreme individualism that Colson warned about. Just me and Jesus. James says we do need each other if we want our faith to grow strong enough to be resilient through the hard times in life. Individualists find themselves struggling and their faith in Jesus faltering when they go through hard times because they're not part of a praying community. Now, although we certainly always have room to grow here at Glenkirk in the area of prayer, we are a praying community our pastors and our elders pray for your prayer requests that come in every week. In fact, it's one of the highlights of my week is praying through those prayer requests. And I see you pray with each other before and and after services. And I hear stories of you praying with each other in your small groups and in our ministries. And before the pandemic, we had elders available after services to pray with people after the services. And I look forward to reinstituting that in the very near future. Because Glen Kirk is a church that values prayer. We pray together and we need it to sustain us. Now let's talk a little bit about healing prayer from verses 14 and 15 of the passage that I read. Sickness is certainly one of life's troubles. In fact, there are a few things in life that are more debilitating than to have a chronic illness or a serious injury. The the word James uses in verse 14 actually means weakness. And, And although this word is most often used to describe physical illness in the Bible, it is occasionally used to describe emotional or mental or spiritual distress as well. So any condition that weakens us, From what we would normally be able to do fits under the sickness that he describes in verse 14. And James says that when someone is in this condition, they should call the elders to pray. Call the elders to pray for them. Notice they call their own church leaders. They're they're not calling a, a, a TV faith healer or people in another church. They're calling their own elders. In the New Testament, local congregations were led by elders, groups of elders. In fact, the word Presbyterian comes from the Greek word for elders in the Bible. Presbyterian churches are churches that are led by elders. Not the only churches that are led by elders, but that is a uniqueness of being a Presbyterian. And there are two different kinds of elders. There are teaching elders that we also call pastors, And there are ruling elders who are lay people from the congregation who are recognized as having a level of spiritual maturity who are chosen by the congregation to lead the church in partnership with the teaching elders, with the pastors. These are the people we're to call when we're sick. And it's not as if elders have certain healing power. It's not like when we ordained our new elders last Sunday that they were given special gifts of healing. I like what reform scholar Dan McCartney says. He says, elders are to be called not because they're invested with special powers, but because they represent the church as a whole and their prayers are an expression of the prayers of the entire congregation. I love that idea. And notice it's the sick person who takes the initiative to call for the elders to come pray. Elders don't just show up at someone's hospital bed for healing prayer. Here we are. The person calls for them. In fact, part of a sick person's expression of their own faith is to ask the elders to come and to pray for healing. And of course, this doesn't mean that only elders can pray for healing. Any Christian can engage in healing prayer, but here James focuses on starting with spiritual leaders. Also, calling for elders when you're sick does not mean that we shouldn't also go to the doctor and seek medical treatment. The Bible is not against medical treatment. Two books of the New Testament were written by a physician, Luke and Acts, God has blessed humanity with the ability to to find cures and discover treatments for diseases. And this is a gift from God that should be received with gratitude. So it's not either healing prayer, call the elders, or medical care. It's both and. When the elders come, James says that they should anoint the sick person with oil. In the ancient world, kings and prophets and priests would be anointed with oil in order to consecrate them, to set them apart for the work that they were called to do. And so it's likely that the anointing of a sick person before prayer is a symbolic reminder that their life belongs to God. It is set apart, consecrated to God in God's hands. Next, the elders and the sick person ask God for healing by faith. They pray in faith for healing. The the prayer offered in faith in verse 15, it's not like a special prayer. It's just Christian prayer. In the Bible, prayer is not magic where if we just know the right words and say them with the right way and the right tone, we'll get what we want. Prayer is a relationship with God that is based on faith. And so together in faith, the elders and the sick person ask God for healing of the sickness. And because the prayer is offered in faith, we trust in God's response. Trusting in God's response. And at first, verse 15 might sound like a guarantee that the sick person will immediately get better. But if you dig a little deeper, you find that it's a little bit more complex than that. The Greek word translated make well in verse 15 is a verb that is normally translated save in the Bible. And this particular verb is usually used to describe God saving us from our sins through Jesus. Sometimes it refers to being healed or made well, but most often it refers to being saved from our sins through Jesus. And so James is being a little vague here, which I think he does on purpose. And the same is true for the word translated raise up in verse 15. This word raise up, it can refer to a sick person being raised up from their sick bed because they've recovered from a sickness or an illness. But this same word is frequently used in the Bible to refer to our resurrection. To our bodies being raised up from the dead after we die when Jesus comes again. Same word. So again, I think James is purposefully being a little vague here. Because he knows that God's response to healing prayer will vary according to God's will. Sometimes God, in response to healing prayer, instantaneously heals a person. I've seen this happen. Other times, healing prayer, after healing prayer, healing comes gradually as a person slowly recovers from an illness or an injury, perhaps as a combination of prayer and medical treatment and their body's own recovery process. That's healing too. And sometimes God's response is not physical healing in this moment or in this life. But instead, in response to healing prayer, God gives the sick person the grace they need to endure their illness. And God gives their church community the grace they need to support and walk with that person through their illness. And in this case, physical healing doesn't come until our final resurrection when our body is raised up from the dead, immortal. But the grace to endure the affliction is the healing that God gives. Years ago, when I was pastoring at my, my very first church, um, there was a woman who called the elders for healing prayer. We'll call her, say her name was Sheila. Sheila discovered a lump in her breast and went in for a biopsy, and the biopsy came back confirming that it was cancer. And her doctor referred her to a surgeon who scheduled her for a lumpectomy to remove the lump and to do a pathology report on it. And so, a couple of days before Sheila's surgery, she came to the elders of that church asking for healing prayer. And so, some of our elders, we met with Sheila, we read this passage from James, we anointed her with oil, and we laid hands on her, and we prayed for healing. And when she went into surgery a couple of days later, and the surgeon went in, the lump was completely gone, there was no sign of cancer. Even the atheist surgeon said, It's a miracle. Never seen anything like this. And the cancer never came back. And our church praised God for healing Sheila. Then about 10 years later, Sheila started developing symptoms of early onset Alzheimer's disease. And so she called the elders for prayer once again. And again, we came and we anointed her with oil and we read this passage And together, we prayed for healing. Some of the very same elders who prayed for her a decade earlier. Only this time, Sheila's healing didn't come the way that we were asking. Sheila didn't recover from her disease. In fact, it kept getting worse. But God gave Sheila remarkable grace to endure her illness and God gave our church community remarkable grace to support Sheila and her husband with the love and support that they needed until that disease eventually took Sheila's life. Healing comes in a variety of different ways. Finally, James says that healing prayer leads us to experience God's forgiveness Experiencing God's forgiveness. Our body and our soul are interconnected. And James leaves open the possibility that an illness can be caused by a sin in our lives. This isn't always the case. It isn't even um, usually the case. But James says if that is the case, healing prayer can also bring a person into forgiveness of sins. See, healing prayer is an example of how praying together as a community strengthens our faith during life's ups and downs. I hope that many of you will join us tonight at 5.30 for a healing prayer service, whether it's in person or online as we live stream it. It it just didn't seem right to not have a healing prayer service after teaching on this text. The final two verses, James talks about walking together in verses 19 and 20. Let me read it. it. says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Sometimes people wander away. From their faith in Jesus, the the word James uses it's a word that's frequently used for getting lost. I was studying this passage and I thought that back to a couple of years ago when my youngest son went on a rock climbing trip in the San Jacinto Wilderness and he'd never been to this particular climbing spot before, and he got lost. And it was hot and he was running low on water and he was disoriented and his cell phone reception wasn't strong enough to sustain a phone call. He kept trying to call me and it kept dropping. And so finally he texted me, I'm lost. And of course I panicked. How am I going to help him? Then I got an idea. I said, since you have spotty reception, drop a pin with your iPhone. It shows his location and text it to me. And so he did. And sent me his location and I was able to look on the map and see that he was about two miles Southeast of the campground where he parked his car. So I was able to text him, here's where you are, relationship to your car, and he used his compass and was able to find his way back. Now, I may not have saved him from death or saved or covered a multitude of his sins, but I saved myself an expensive search and rescue fee if I called the sheriff's department and done a search for him. When someone gets lost in their faith and we're able to help bring them back, James says, you've done a good thing. You've saved them from drifting too far away. You've brought them into forgiveness. This is the second way we need the church to live out our faith. Holding each other accountable helps us stay on the path of following Jesus. Holding each other accountable. I love the way a Bible scholar named Martha Morkish puts it at the end of her commentary on James. She says, all those who have forgotten the way, all who have gotten tangled in the thickets of ambition and envy, lured away by the shiny objects of fame and fortune, all who have said hurtful things and ignored the poor, do not give up on them, says James. You, brothers and sisters, by walking together in the paths of righteousness may yet bring them back during this season of covid around the world people have drifted away from their churches here at glenkirk our, our in-person worship attendance is about half of what it was prior to the pandemic and and i know that many of you are still worshiping online on any given sunday we'll have over a 100 people that are live streaming online and another 400 who watch it that week sometime and i know that many of you are doing that for good and valid reasons I also know that some people have changed churches during this season. And although it's painful to to see people leave us for another congregation, I'm not as worried about those people because they're still connected to a local church. It's the people who've drifted away and who aren't going anywhere that I worry about. It's the people who've joined that 40% of Christians in America trying to live out of faith as individuals without a connection to a local church. So as we enter the season of Advent in Christmas, starting next Sunday, I really believe that we are entering a season of invitation here at Glenkirk. And I wonder what it might be like for us to each and every one of us to apply the last two verses of James by personally reaching out to someone we know that's drifted away And isn't connected anywhere. Not to shame them or embarrass them or make them feel guilty, but to encourage them, to invite them back, if not to Glenkirk, to somewhere. Because we need community to keep us on the path of following Jesus. James tells us that a faith that works needs. Other followers of Jesus praying together strengthens our faith during life's ups and downs and walking together holds us accountable and keeps us from drifting away and losing the way. These are radical ideas in an individualistic culture. A lot of you know that I do a lot of the cooking in our house and tonight I'm making trout and um, the recipe as I was doing the recipe plan and got me to thinking about rainbow trout. Rainbow trout, you probably know, is a freshwater species of trout that's common in California, streams and lakes and rivers. And many rainbow trout are landlocked, and so they only grow to be about one to three pounds. I've caught plenty of rainbow trout, and um, through the years, probably you know, none larger than two pounds, although when I retell the stories, they get bigger and bigger. But rainbow trout that aren't landlocked and that live near the coast actually migrate to the ocean. And as they migrate from freshwater streams and ponds into the saltwater of the ocean, they go through a pretty remarkable transformation. They're transformed from freshwater rainbow trout into saltwater steelhead. And steelhead get Bigger than rainbow trout. Much, much bigger. But the average rainbow trout is about one to three pounds. That uh, A steelhead can weigh up to 55 pounds. And I think the Christians that are landlocked in individualism are a little like rainbow trout. They only grow so much. And they become come so accustomed to swimming in the shallows of individualism, they don't know that there's a whole ocean of spiritual growth, ministry, depth, and community. The Christians who venture into community are like a rainbow trout that's migrating and being transformed into a steelhead. As they venture from the shallows of individualism and enter a congregation filled with imperfect people who make mistakes, but are seeking Jesus together, they discover a whole ocean of new possibilities. And as they swim in the ocean of community, they grow stronger and stronger than they ever could have been in the shallows of individualism. May God help us be a congregation that invites those swimming in the shallows into the ocean of community, into a faith that works. Because as James says, faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words and these encouragements. Thank you, Lord, that there are more possibilities and growth opportunities and challenges that we could ever imagine in the ocean of community. And yet, Lord, it feels safe and secure swimming in the shallows. Give us courage in ourselves to be a praying congregation, to hold one another accountable. And as we enter the season of Advent, a season of invitation. Lord, may we be the inviting ones. May our lives be an invitation. May our words be an invitation. May we be ambassadors of your love and of your grace. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.